This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. An infamous serial killer is captured with a new and legally murky use of DNA testing. It's a landmark case. But should we all be concerned about our privacy rights? We're in a little bit of a no-man's land when it comes to the laws. We're in this other moment now where digital knowledge, biomedical advances, has really changed what police are capable of doing. Then, the Me Too movement has toppled some huge names in entertainment and politics, and the issue has resonated in a very deep way throughout our society. Are corporations now taking sexual harassment seriously? Having a good policy in place, putting more stringent and more rigorous kinds of requirements in place, that may be a good starting point, but we know it's unlikely to change behavior in the long run. Stick around. Those stories and more are on the way on this week's edition of InfoTrack. Back to InfoTrack. Once again, here's Roy Mackey. Rapid advances in science and technology are opening up new legal and ethical questions nearly every day. The recent case of an infamous serial killer has opened a litany of questions both from a criminal prosecution standpoint and in your everyday right to privacy. We're joined by Aaron Murphy, a DNA expert and professor at New York University School of Law. Chances are you've heard of the Golden State Killer, so Professor Murphy, can you pick it up from there and just explain, maybe for those who aren't up to speed, how this accused serial killer was captured through a creative use of DNA some 30 years later? Sure. Well, in a traditional case, when you collect evidence from a crime scene that you think was left by the perpetrator, the government would do tests of the biological material for genetic information at 20 different spots on the genome. And then they would compare that to either a known suspect, you know, if they had a person in mind, or they'd compare it to a database held at the state or the federal level that contains profiles of known persons. They're either convicted offenders or arrested persons in general. And then you get a match and and proceed from there. There's also a method called familial searching, which allows you to look in those offender databases for people who might be relatives of the perpetrator. So it wouldn't be the actual match to the perpetrator. It would instead be maybe a father, a brother, a son, whose genetic profile so closely resembles the crime scene evidence. It makes you think, you know what, that person might have a close biological link to our assailant. What was done in this case is a step beyond that. You know, essentially they couldn't find a match in the database. They couldn't find a successful lead through these traditional familial searches. And so they did a different kind of genetic testing. They did the kind of testing you do when you engage in recreational genetics like Ancestry or 23andMe. And using that type of information, they then basically ran a comparison search in a recreational site where people had posted their biology in order to find connections across the country. And that site essentially is an open source free site and allowed them to effectively triangulate and find a very distant relative, which is how I understand they eventually got to the perpetrator. Yeah, it's interesting that the suspect himself never submitted his DNA to a family tree site. It was some distant relative. If someone submits their DNA to one of these sites, how many close and distant relatives can typically be put in the spotlight as well? Well, this to me is one of the most striking features of this case. You know, I think what a lot of people latch onto is the idea that a public database that's used for recreational genetics was used. For me, it's actually somewhat different concern or a different thing raised my eyebrows, which is that, as I mentioned, the type of testing that was done 
is a much more powerful form of genetic testing. You know, most people think genetics and they assume all tests are created equal. The information is kind of the same, no matter if you're going for medical purposes or recreational purposes or for criminal justice purposes. But in fact, the kind of tests that are done are really different. And they're different in part because of a concern in the criminal justice field that we don't want to have personal or private information exposed. We want to just use this biological knowledge as a very neutral marker of identity and not something that would tell you also medical information or other dispositions. And when you get into the recreational genetics, it's actually a much more powerful form of testing. And that's why in this case, from my understanding, they found a third cousin, I think it was. And to my knowledge, I haven't seen where the law enforcement officers have released the identity of that third cousin. It's not even clear that they know each other. And that's, to me, a pretty telling thing. It's really now using the biology in a way that kind of transcends what you in your ordinary life think of as your family relationships or your self-identity within a community. And so that powerful use is not possible in the criminal justice database because they use these other markers that are meant to be less, you know, worrisome with privacy concerns. You couldn't find a third cousin in a criminal justice database. They had to go to some more powerful testing system to do that. Also in this case, no warrant, no court order, and of course no consent by the suspect to share his DNA was involved. This is all kind of new, isn't it? It is, and I think we're in a little bit of a no-man's land when it comes to the law. There's conventional Fourth Amendment doctrine, the prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures in the Constitution. It really has developed over 200 years of history that involved the tangible physical world imposing real limits on what police can do. And just the same way that the advent of the automobile dramatically changed the reach of police power, we're in this other moment now where digital knowledge, biological knowledge, you know, you know, biomedical advances has really changed also what police are capable of doing. And I think we see courts grappling and struggling with this very kind of analog doctrine in a digital age. But right now it's a pretty wild west. There isn't existing constitutional doctrine or statutory law that makes it clear that anything that they did here was wrong or illegal. But my concern is that there's also no law that says, for instance, you know, if a police officer decided they thought someone's DNA would make for a great offspring, given their infertility issues, there's no clear constitutional prohibition on that. But I think we all can agree that wouldn't be acceptable. Our guest on InfoTrack is Dr. Erin Murphy. She's a DNA expert from New York University's School of Law. And we're talking about the case where the Golden State Killer suspect was tracked down using DNA from a genealogy database and the legal and privacy implications of that. Police haven't used this before, but these databases are open to the public. Are there any other instances that you can think of where police are prohibited from using anything that you or I could easily access as members of the public? Well, I think, you know, what you can access as a member of the public is kind of a tricky question. So, you know, if you ask yourself, what if, you know, Michelle McNamara is the author of the book that really brought this case to everyone's attention. And what if Michelle McNamara had done this? I mean, she had a list of people she thought might be the Golden State Killer. What if she had gone to their houses and waited outside and collected their garbage and sent it off to a lab or had a friend do the testing and uploaded it? And if she had done all of that, would everyone really just agree that's okay, that once you throw away your cup, anyone can do what they want with your genetic information? I think most people would say, whoa, you know, isn't there some kind of privacy law about that? There are limits to what private individuals are allowed to do, even if it's not clear in law right now. And I think, you know, the fact that, for instance, the law enforcement officers had to check a box here that said they had express authorization to upload to this site 
cops will say, yeah, we had authorization because we were doing a police investigation. But I think other people might say, actually, you know, you did kind of skirt around the edges of what an ordinary person could do. I understand there has been a lot of advances in DNA testing in the past few years. What can you tell us that the average person would be surprised about? Well, I think one thing is how rapid DNA testing is really, I think, going to take over DNA in the next five years. So there are now machines about the size of a desktop printer that can return a result in about 90 minutes, 50 minutes, you know, really minimal amount of time. I think we'll be moving to handheld machines, ones that police can carry on the street with them. And then the whole logistical encumbrance of DNA testing, what makes it hard to do it, will really be eliminated because police can now just stop someone on the street and run an instant test or pull you over in your car and run a fairly instant test and be connected also to all these databases and so forth. So I think rapid testing is one example. And then the other example is this method that was used in this case called SNPs, these single nucleotide polymorphisms or pieces of the genome that are the actual kind of sequence of your genetic code and have much greater implications for privacy, medical, and otherwise than the kind of other form of DNA testing that's been traditionally done in criminal justice. And so I think courts are already looking at cases where they make genetic mugshots. You know, they look at a suspect's genetic information and they can make a physical image. What do they think the person looks like? I think we'll be seeing many more uses of genetic information in criminal justice that are really pushing more toward these boundaries of what do we think it's okay for police to know about you and what do we think, even if they have access to your genetic code, should be kept private. Fascinating topic. Erin Murphy, DNA expert, professor at New York University School of Law. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Up next, the Me Too movement and how corporations have reacted to it. Is your boss taking it seriously? There's more info track coming up. Stay tuned.